Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf Yudchet, page 18. We're switching gears. Our daf today is not talking about weddings or funerals. We're switching into a discussion of uh, basically what happens when there's a monetary dispute and you have you know two parties and each claims something else. And part of the way to get to a situation of verification, I would say, is that one party often the like the person who's making the let's see if we can say this easily if you have two parties and one claims that the other one claims that the other owes him money then the other person might have to take an oath to say i've already paid you back or i never owed i never borrowed money from you to begin with right there, there's a vast amount of talmudic discussion law etc that is devoted to this kind of monetary dispute uh, it's not usually in Masachet Ketubot, except for that, of course, it is because a we've said that Ketubot has all kinds of things in it, and also because it's such a, a prominent kind of discussion in Nizikin in the in the Mishnah Seder order of damages, meaning property issues, that it's going to show up elsewhere. It's surprising to me, actually, Yordana, coming to think of it, that we haven't had this discussion more often over the past two and a half years. Um, so in any case, the discussion here is about these oaths, right? That one is going to need to take to to determine where one stands with regard to a partial sum. And the Gemara asks, because all of this is really, I'm setting us up for a much smaller conversation, where the Gemara says, um, didn't the Gemara, didn't, didn't Matt, the, within the discussion says, didn't he say, Einish ba'in al ta'anat isn't there a principle that says, or that a person has an opinion that says that don't we not take an oath on the basis of the claim of a cheresh, that's the Talmudic deaf mute, right? Again, not the deaf mute, not a deaf person of today, um, or uh, shota, somebody who is cognitively impaired to a great degree, or a minor. Meaning, the point is that in each of these cases, there's a presumption of a lack of cognition even for a minor who might be, you know, uh, you know, a whiz at math, right? That's not the issue. The issue is that halakhically um, that a, a minor is not deemed competent in order to take an oath. Competence meaning, um, you know, of reaching the age of majority and therefore responsibility. So what's interesting to me here is that the Gemara then just like kind of takes a sidebar to discuss what is a katan. And we have been talking about a katan throughout, right? Because there's been all kinds of, I don't know, all kinds of cases where one's halachic status for the level of responsibility matters. I'm thinking of Amod and children, right? But my katan, so the, when, what does, it, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean to say a minor? And the Gemara says gadol. It means somebody who's reached the age of majority, therefore should be halachically competent. So then the Gemara says, katan. So why would you ever call him a katan? Meaning, we've a, it goes without saying that somebody who is truly not yet of the age of majority is um, is not going to be eligible to be held accountable by t- taking an oath. So why, but, but still, why would you call somebody who's truly already of age, why would you call such a person a katan? So, because with regard to the 
the matters that pertain to his father, he is like a minor. He's the equivalent of minor of a minor. Meaning he's he's not up on the details. He might be shy about his father's dealings, right? I mean, whatever it is, he's functioning in a less responsible way than a uh, then one is expected to as uh, somebody who's reached the age of majority. Well, so in that case, right, if it's the case that the this is a son who's already of age, then why would the why would the brightest language be imprecise? Meaning, when it says cherish uh, it says katan. Like that's a that's a threesome that's very often, you know, together, right? So why why would this be? Um, why would this language be in use? And also, what's this point of saying he should take an oath based, this is, again, because we didn't get into the whole discussion, but where he's allowed to make an oath based on his own claim, just not on someone's claim against him. So the Gemara here says, The Gemara says, no, it's not his own claim. So that's why he can't make his own oath. Right? It's that other people are requiring that he make uh, take uh, it's their claim, and he would have to take an oath. And he's taking an oath on the basis of his own partial admission. Now, the moment you have a partial admission, uh, meaning someone says, like, yes, I did that, but not in the, I did borrow money from you, but not in the sum that you're claiming. It was, you know, a third of what you what you want for me to pay you back. Then you're acknowledging part of it. And this is like a a, a whiff of the discussion of moda bimiksat. Some, which is exactly where the Gemara goes, but we're not going to get into it here because I'm going to hand it over to you, Yardena, and you'll handle the Mishnah that's on Amabet. Is it on Amabet? It's on Amabet. Um, that where the idea of Moda Mimiksat, again, that, that there's a partial acknowledgement is a, a very strong halachic, again, miles of halachic discussion. Somebody who acknowledges part as opposed to somebody who is kol bakol, Somebody who denies the, the entire claim. So it's here, but we're going to save it for when, you know, when we have, uh, when that's really the focus of the Gemara, as opposed to all of this discussion has taken, a, as I say, as kind of a sidestep from where we were. Don't worry, we'll come back to Moda Mimiksafakofer call. And again, here's Ketubo going into, you know, touching on um, areas of halacha in which we really need to delve deeply, um, you know. If, again, we're going to talk about Ketubot as representative of so many different areas of halacha. So I love this discussion because it's like not defining the katan by sort of age or, you know, but it's really defining the katan. Like, what does it mean to be a katan in the halachic world? Right. I think that's well said. Yeah. And I mean, I, and, it's difficult and, and, that the word katan is used here, but. Right. It's interesting that the word katan is used here. Exactly. Um, but it's more like this category of person who we describe as a katan. How do they interact with the halakhic world? How do they interact with their father? Like, that's a little bit of what's being explored here. Um, I'm going to move on to the Mishnah and Ahmed Bet, which gets into an interesting discussion about Adim. And it reads as follows. Ha'edim shamru kitaviyatenu huzeh aval anusim hainu. Uh, so we've been in a discussion of sort of like, who do we believe uh, sort of certain statements that a person can make? And here the statement is, is, let's say you have a pair of witnesses 
and they signed a document. And then they come along and they say, you know what? We were forced to sign this document or we were tanim when we were minors when we signed this document. But we actually were disqualified from being witnesses, right? Like they were relatives of the person who whatever the document was about. We believe them basically. Because since the document is credible based on their testimony, if they therefore say that their testimony is no good, they invalidate their own testimony, we believe them. But if there are other witnesses who say, no, this is actually their handwriting, or if their handwriting is seen in another place, in other words, there's another document that you can compare it to, then they are not, we, we don't believe them. The document cannot be uh, made invalid. So in other words, if there's essentially another document that exists and they're not invalidating that document and it's the same handwriting, then we basically say, no, we can't be that. We have to believe, we, we, we sort of can't allow them to sort of say for this document, it's not okay. We write their testimony, their signature is invalid, but somehow it's upheld somewhere else. So the Gemara here has an interesting discussion where it says, I'm a Rabbi Barhama. So Rabbi Barbarhama wants to explain sort of what is this idea that they were forced, you know, they were anusim, they were forced, they were compelled to sign this document. So Rabbi Barbarhama says that the Chachamim teach that this is halachas only where they say, right, we were compelled to sign this document because of a monetary threat, right? In that case, their testimony sort of incriminates them because they basically testified falsely for money, right? And the testimony of one who incriminates themselves is not accepted. But if they said we were compelled to sign this uh, because our lives were in danger, right? Mahamat nefashot, then they obviously we would believe them because there's nothing that's self-incriminating here. So the idea that he's trying to say is, is that we wouldn't teach us about where they said we we you know we signed this because we were paid money, it would have to be that it was like it was it was a matter of life and death, and that's why they signed it. Amrle Rava. So Rava says to Rami Barbarhamo, Koki Mine, right? Is this the it, 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 what's this power that they have to basically sort of retract their testimony? Once witnesses say their their testimony in court, they can't go back and then say, No, my testimony isn't good. And if you say, right, that this applies specifically to oral testimony, right, something that was said by mouth, right, but not with a document, you know, know that this principle wouldn't apply and that you could retract your testimony. Witnesses, the status of a witness who has a sign who signed a document is the same thing as a test as as testimony that was cross-examined in court. In other words, we can't say that maybe you can just retract oral testimony because actually, according to Rachel Luckish, it holds the same weight as something that's written. Ella Keith when he says this, Arisha Idmar, he was talking about the first clause of the Mishnah, right? And that basically, if there's no way to uh, validate or somehow corrob- corroborate their, their signatures, okay, we're going to believe them. I'm a Rabbi Barbarachana, so now we're going to sort of teach this statement again. 
right? When the Chachamim taught this, only in the case where, the, where they said, what? Right? They were anusim, meaning there was a threat of death. But if they say, we were compelled to do this because of a monetary threat, we don't believe that. My time out, what's the reason? Because a person doesn't want to make himself wicked and sort of self-incriminate uh, and, and, and and say that he did something bad. So in other words, saying that somebody did something for money is basically like not something somebody would really admit themselves to. But saying that they did something and it wasn't good testimony because a threat of death, that's something that people would basically admit themselves to. That That's a plausible scenario. So the reason what they were forced, why they were forced, becomes just as important, basically. And I think this is a way that the Amurayim really sort of try to restrict this Mishnah. Because when you read the Mishnah, it seems very broad. It's almost like anybody could come and be like, oh, I signed this, but I was just kidding. And then the Amurayim come and basically say, no, it's really only one specific case. It's a case where you you signed a document because of fr- threat of death, but basically any other circumstance, you wouldn't really be allowed to sort of retract your signature as it appears uh, on a document. Um, I, I think this Mishnah's once the Amorayim come, it's, it's logical. I think when you first read the mission itself, it, it, it feels very broad. And so I think this is an excellent example of like why you need the Gemara to really explain the Mishnah. I agree. <clears throat> Excuse me. I agree. I think that the Gemara does, you know, exactly the job that we needed to here. I also am kind of intrigued at the, you know, the drama of like, you know, the under threat now the fact that the Jews were often under threat from external authorities is, you know, well known, but for some reason, this, this mission has struck me as more local than that. Um, the scenarios in my head were for no good reason, right. That, that pop into my head as examples of what this could happen, of how this could happen, strike me much more as like, you know, uh, you know, law and order type of TV type of cases, as opposed to um, the non-Jewish oppressor, and therefore, the Jew makes a, you know, commits to something under oath that they wouldn't have done otherwise, or they sign something, they agree to something that they that they're that they're threatened with. So I, we'll have to see as the next do, do, couple of dots play out if there's any um, corroboration to either kind of what what would cause somebody to have this kind of threat against them. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.